Hi, I'm Kirsty. And I'm Kelsey. And it's time to hate watch with us. This week, we are going to be talking about friendships, I just realized is the overarching theme between our two segments. So we're going to be talking... <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, where we prepare every Where week. we pick our topics intentionally. So we're going to be talking about some television friendships and why we like them and what they mean to us and why they give us feelings. And then we are going to be talking about some things that happen in our real life friendships, particularly what happens when you try to talk to people about television and whether or not any of the television identified is good and how we respond in those moments. That was accurate. That's accurate. Yeah, it's a tough topic to define. It's really just a feeling of being right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I have a couple of central questions that came to me right after we hit record. So we'll get into it and we'll see where it takes us. It'll be great. I'd love to go back and count how many of our episode intros end with me saying, we'll see where it takes us. (laughs) (laughs) Drink twice. Drink twice. So yeah, let's get right into it. Talk to me, Kelsey, about some of your favorite television friendships. I'm going to draft first. Leslie and Anne Obs. as the pinnacle friendship ever depicted on television. I once saw, uh, either saw an article or listened to a podcast. I think I was listening to a podcast. Either way, they were talking about television friendships and did not identify Anne and Leslie at any point in the conversation. And I don't know that I have ever felt more wronged. How rude. It is the rudest thing I have ever encountered. Ugh. Well, they were wrong, obviously. (laughs) Leslie and Anne are just the greatest. They have the best compliments for each other. They have the best drunken arguments with each other. (laughs) Their drunken arguments are everything. Ugh, they are everything. And they are supportive of each other. I always like the times when Anne and Ben team up to help Leslie or something like that. Because it's so pure. Never send a husband to do a best friend's job. Right. Those are words we live by, podcast listeners. (laughs) Literally. The other thing I love is that they are not always supportive of each other in the sense of enabling. Right. Sometimes they are supportive of each other in ways that are like really high tension and high conflict. So I'm thinking of a couple of episodes where Leslie points out that Anne always takes on the personality of whoever she's dating and how that creates a rift between them and a temporary one. But it still leads to personal growth on both sides of that equation. Like Leslie realizes that she was being a dick to Anne and was like not being terribly sensitive. And Anne realizes that Leslie is also right as the person who knows her best in this world. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that one of the things I value most in my friendships is like people being frank with me. Like, I like being called on my shit about as much as anybody likes being called on their shit. It's true. And I think I should thank Michael Shore and his <laughs> his world that I love so much. And I think that all of the friendships on Parks and Rec have taught me about friendship. Mm-hmm. And it's so great. Yeah, I live by that show as if it were an instructional text. And I'm not saying it wasn't meant to be, but I live by it as if it was written for me to study and learn from as I make my way through this world. Right. (laughs) And I think you could truly look at any of the friendships in it and dissect them. Like on my list, 
I have Ron Swanson just as a standalone figure because I think you could look at him as a touch point to any other given character in the show mm-hmm. and see a friendship bond that is really powerful. Right. And you see that whenever he says something that's not emotional and people get emotional about it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the characters in that show conduct themselves with so much love and integrity, and that's the basis of all of their relationships. It's so beautiful. And then there's Tom and Donna, who just have Treat Yourself Day. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. What's not to love about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's like on the surface they function like acquaintances, but in reality they have a very supportive bond that comes from just having shared interests. Right. Like, they're not Anne and Leslie. They're not, like, spiritual soulmates, but they're definitely soulmates. It's true. I also, speaking of groups of people who are just overcome with friendship for each other, (laughs) let's talk about everyone on Great Bridge Bake Off. (laughs) Oh, my God! Let's do that! (laughs) I just wrote down... While you were talking, it's I suddenly had the light bulb, and I just wrote down Paul and Mary. Yeah! I've just recently started watching Great British Bake Off Masterclass. It's on Netflix. Alert, alert. (laughs) And I didn't understand until I watched it that it's literally Paul and Mary doing their recipes from the challenges. And when Paul does the recipe, Mary's the sous chef. And when Mary (laughs) does the recipes, Paul's the sous chef. And they banter for a full 59 minutes every single episode. And it's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Well, so you sent me a message on Slack the other day when you first started watching it and said that you realized the masterclass was the genesis of them sitting in the tent eating each other's like example piece for that challenge. Yeah. And I love those moments because obviously this is staged, but it still feels like friendship to me. And that's all I'm here for. There's always this moment as the camera's panning into the two of them in the judge's tent where the example bake is sitting in the middle of the table and whosoever bake it isn't. So if, if it's a Mary recipe, Paul is sitting there with a fork in hand, just like waxing poetic about this beautiful example of pastry before <laughs> him. <laughs> I just like, they feel like two highly skilled individuals who have a high level of professional respect for each other. They do. And they're also like co-hosts, which as we now know, is that's like a different kind of bond. It's the ultimate bond. It is the ultimate bond. (laughs) There's a lot of teamwork involved. So aside from (laughs) even Paul and Mary and Mel and Sue, not to leave Mel and Sue out of here. Mel and Sue are also my favorite banter friends. It's true. Everyone in general, like all of the contestants on Great British Bake Off, have a level of friendship and not a level of competition with each other, which I know many, many people have talked about and we've talked about before. But it's worth noting here that they all help each other when they're done with their bake. If someone else isn't done, they help them like get it prepped and get it ready to go. Or they save their cake from falling on the ground. Or they're always just helpful and lighthearted with each other. And it's just such a warm, wonderful tent. Yeah, that to me is like where Anne and Leslie are the pinnacle of intimate friendship. The contestants on Great British Bake Off feel like the pinnacle of generalized friendship. Yes. 
I work with children and we spend a lot of time talking about like friendship skills. And that's what it feels like to me. Like you walk into the world and to any group of people that you're with and these people should be your friends. You don't have to be friends with them outside of this room, but they should be your friends. And so what's it like to try to be friends with them? We all help each other. Are you going to show six-year-olds a Great British Bake Off? I would. (laughs) (laughs) If I were allowed to have enough screen time in my classroom, I would. Sure. (laughs) So who else is on your list, Kirstie? I had to work really hard to keep Parks and Rec off my list, so Anne and Leslie was all I allowed myself to have. Mm Mm-hmm. I say that because now that you guys know a thing or two about friendship, I'd really like you to recognize my accomplishment and give me a gold star. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another show universe I had to work really hard to stay away from, but I allowed myself two examples, was Jane the Virgin, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the two that I pulled out were Jane and Raph and Jane and Zoe, which should come as no surprise. This is another universe, much like Parks and Rec, where you could draw a line between any two characters and talk at length about the strength of their friendship and, like, why that stands as an impactful friendship. And this is another show that I, I mean, it's a new addition to my life. It hasn't been with me as long as Parks and Rec has, but it's another one that I live by at this point. It's true. So Jane and Raphael have been through the ringer together and have decided that they have no choice but to make it work for Mateo's sake. But after a certain point for each other's sake, because they've been through so much together, like they're really all they have. And I just think seeing two people who have to go through a lot of difficult shit together and come out the other end still actively making the choice to be friends is beautiful. Because the whole point of Jane the Virgin is like whether or not fate is a thing, right? Because Jane always believed that love was fate. Well, it's like fate versus choice, right? Yeah. And a lot of season three is about that question. And I think ultimately Jane ends up falling down on the side of choice. And I love seeing that play out. And I think she and Raph are an incredible example of choice. Like they make that choice actively and they say it out loud. Which like the other thing I just love is that that show is so fucking blunt about what it's thrown down. Yes. I've also really enjoyed, I'm only halfway through this last season, season three, but I've enjoyed any time that Jane and Petra have formed a friendship. Yeah, they have a wonderful friendship. And they're both very good adversaries in a lot of ways, but they find ways to support each other at the same time, which has been interesting to see developing. Mm -hmm. The other Jane the Virgin friendship I had to mention was Rogelio and Michael. Yeah. Because yeah. it was my favorite bromance maybe of all time. <laughs> Brahelio. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really beautiful. Oh, it was so good. And leads to some particularly powerful storytelling in the back half of season three. Oh, don't tell me that. I'm just saying. I can't. Um, <laughs> I can't. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. But no, I really liked what they did with the two of them and their friendship in season three. Mm-hmm. I pointed out Jane and Zoe in particular, like, especially considering that I had to constrain my list, because I've mentioned before that I really like mother-daughter relationships. And I mean, it's a thing that hits home with me because I happen to be extremely close with my mom. And it's a thing people identify about me, like, pretty quickly. And, like, all of my friends are friends with my mom. It's true. Like, my mom is, like, part of the group at this point. <laughs> Which is, it's funny, right? But it's unusual. 
And I've never seen Gilmore Girls. And as far as I know, that's the only other show that would like really show this dynamic effectively. But all of the other things I've ever seen, all the other stories I've ever seen trying to tell mother-daughter relationships don't do a great job of telling the story of transitioning from like parent and child to like adult friends who still have a parent and child dynamic. Yeah. But I think Jane the Virgin did it really effectively. Like, my mother was not Zoe, but the way that Zoe and Jane interact is extremely similar to the way my mom and I interact. And they even show in a couple of places, like, the tension between the two of them as Jane became an adult. And that's super real. Like, it's hard to figure out how you become friends with your parent. Yeah, I have Lorelai and Murray on here from Gilmore Girls, and I think it's a lesser example than the Jane the Virgin example that you're mentioning, only because they really start out with almost a too mature friendship, Mm. for Rory's age at least. How old is Rory when the show starts? Like 16. Oh, okay. So it works for the show and in that universe, but it's not realistic in the way that Jane the Virgin is. Yeah. I also wrote down, speaking of Gilmore Girls, a lot of people reference Rory and Lean as friendships that are notable on TV, and I just want to point out that that is not correct. (laughs) So tell me more, because when I was thinking of positive examples, I came up with an infinite list of things that I felt were negative examples. So talk to me. So everyone says that they're good friends, and in the beginning they are. However, throughout the whole, at least last three or four seasons, plus the reboot, Lane is a good friend, but Rory just kind of disappears, does her own thing because she's selfish and annoying, and then comes back to town and seems to know nothing about her friend's life or what she's been doing or what she's up to, but then insists on needing something from her or needing support from her. And she's just not a good partner in that friendship. So was that an intentional choice to tell a story about, like, childhood friends having a falling out? Or was the show just, like, really lacking that much self-awareness? The show wants you to think that they're best friends for life. Okay, great. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Great and cool. Mm -hmm. But there's... Rory's a problematic character for a lot of reasons. Oh, for sure. On that same note, I purposefully chose not to put down any of the relationships in Friends because I feel very much like most of those friendships are problematic. Although I do have Joey feels, which we can talk about at a later date. (laughs) But in particular, I drew a line in my list. So the header says TV friendships, and then there's the list, and then there's a line in the margin, and the header says worst, and underneath it just says Phoebe, underlined like 45 times. (laughs) Because (laughs) this is not a show that has aged well, and a lot of critics have said that. So it's becoming like a recognized phenomena, sure. But Phoebe was written into the show as if her problem was that she was quirky. Her problem is that she's a terrible human being. Her problem is that she is a shitbag. And the show keeps trying to play it off as if it's fucking cute. And it's just not. Like, she's a mooch. She's rude. She's mean. She's vindictive. Mm -hmm. And, like, no matter how long they were friends with her, there's still parts of her life she never shares with them. And, like, your life is your own, I guess. But if we're going to be, you know, lifelong friends, then, like, I should probably know some stuff about you. It's true. And that's just, like, the short list of things I hate about Phoebe. That's, like, not even the, the full shebang. But none of her friendships in that group are cute or fun or reasonable. You know what's also not fun or reasonable? Hmm. Your cat named Phoebe. <laughs> Okay, let's not drag her into this. <laughs> it was too easy. I'm just 
kidding, Phoebe. <laughs> it's not her fault. I just happen to like that name. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's actually probably a small blessing for my future children that I had a cat named Phoebe before a kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> whatever so i tried to stay away from couples who are also friends for the most part on this list but the one i did include was sharon and rob from catastrophe Mm-hmm. because they're I f- an incredible example i feel like they do love each other but their friendship often comes through stronger than their affection for each other if that makes sense Totally. And this is a thing I had a really hard time with, too, is the majority of my examples were relationships. Ben and Leslie came to mind. Mm-hmm. Jim and Pam in the early seasons, like after they start dating, but before they get married. Mm-hmm. There were others, whatever. I do have one pair on here, Joe and Helen from Wings, who do eventually get together, but there's a long time where they're not together at all. Anyway, the thing that's hard for me is, like, I've always had this question in my mind about why romantic love is categorized as being different than friend love. And I guess I'm getting to a place in life where I understand it, but I definitely veer towards relationships that are more rooted in friendship. Yeah. And then just, like, also marriage happens, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That should have been your vows. It almost was. (laughs) 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 We were this close. <laughs> and like, you know, maybe that is a personal bias. Like, I think it's fair to say that like, my relationship is a strong friendship. And so I don't know, like, I think there's value to taking time to build out like the friendship piece of a dynamic between two people before you just start talking about love. Because I think like friendship, to me, at least is more concrete than like, love. Yeah, like romantic love. Take note, TV creators. if you're out there (laughs) dear every television producer (laughs) we have advice for you here at hate watch it's interesting not interesting but i guess it is that you mentioned jim and pam i wrote down dwight and pam as my one tv friendship from the office i wrote down jim and dwight wow look at that weird love triangle (laughs) let's dig into that love triangle I just thought when I watched The Office that Dwight and Pam shine through in multiple examples where they have such a pure friendship and it's an accidental friendship almost. They don't try to be friends. And then there's even, I think there's a moment where Pam is like, oh shit, I'm friends with with Dwight. Yeah, (laughs) there is an episode. But there are some very sweet and quiet little friendship moments that happen between those two. Like when she's crying on the bench and he ties his jacket around his waist (laughs) before sitting down next to her to comfort her. Uh (laughs) Like they're so unlikely as a friendship that it makes it kind of fun. Yeah. So I feel similarly with Jim and Dwight, although I will say that it is not nearly as pure as Pam and Dwight. Mm -hmm. The thing for me about Jim and Dwight is that it's almost like they hate watch each other. (laughs) You see what I did there? Um, No, but like they have this rivalry and over time that's sort of what bonds them. Like when Jim is in Connecticut, Dwight misses him. Right. You know, like he never says it, but he misses him. And Jim plays the whole prank with the scanner or the fax, whatever. Yeah, the fax machine from future Dwight. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, there are quiet moments between the two of them over the course of the entire series where you see that there is, like, a mutual respect. Like, one of the things that wrecks me every single time I see it, and you guys know I have complicated feelings about The Office, but (laughs) this always wrecks me, is 
Dwight is in the stairwell crying over Angela because something happened. And Jim goes and sits next to him and talks to him about how it felt when Pam was with Roy. Mm -hmm. And then he stands up to walk away and Dwight reaches out for him, thinking he's still there. (laughs) (laughs) I use that as a gif all the time. (laughs) It's an incredible gif. It's a great moment of physical comedy, but I actually, like, feel a very deep, like, emotional hit from that. It's like getting sucker punched every time I watch it. Mm -hmm. Because during that time in the series, they hate each other very much. And yet Jim, mostly because of his love for Pam, but Jim still feels the need to, like, comfort Dwight and share that experience with him and, like, offer him something of comfort. And Dwight actually feels comforted by it enough to reach out for Jim and... I don't know what he thought he was going to do, like hold his hand or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But still, it meant enough to Dwight in that moment that he was going to allow Jim to comfort him. Like it was going to be reciprocal Mm -hmm. from two people who hate each other. And then I think you just see that sort of build and escalate over the season until you get to Dwight's wedding. Right. Where they're palling about because they secretly love each other. Aww. Friendship. So much friendship. I've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine recently, and Peralta and Boyle have a pretty standard friendship. They are partners uh, who are cops. No. Nope. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (laughs) They are cops who are partners. (laughs) Wow. Anyway. verbal typos they did a whole episode where jake's past partner as a cop partner (laughs) came back to work with him on a case and they were going to work together as a group of three this is sounding terrible now um but my it was a whole thing about how boyle was jealous that jake had another friend before him and it was literally my feelings throughout your entire wedding every time that you had other members of your wedding party doing anything i love friend jealousy like i don't stand for jealousy but i think friend jealousy is adorable it's so fun everyone just wants to be the best friend they can be and it's really funny like in my circle of friends like every single one of them is my best friend for one reason or another so so it's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> On a totally different note, another recent show that I've watched that has a friendship that's not so funny is Philip Jennings and Stan Beeman from The Americans that you haven't started yet, so close your ears or don't. <laughs> this has played out since the very first episode and now we're at the end of season four and they've had a complicated relationship because one of them is an fbi agent and one of them is a kgb (laughs) officer super cash and they're neighbors so stan doesn't know about philip being kgb agent but they've built this actual genuine friendship out of the requirement that philip befriend him to get information and it's reached a pinnacle where He doesn't really feel comfortable passing on information from Stan to the KGB people. And he's seen what's happened to other people he's had to build relationships with for work. And he doesn't want that to happen to him. So it's built to this weird point where I don't know what they're going to do in their final season with it. But it's actually become a pure friendship that wasn't meant to be. Yeah. So it's been an interesting thing to watch unfold over four seasons. And I don't know where that will go, but it's worth mentioning, I think, in a friendship list. 
Yeah, I think there are quite a few prestige TV shows that have messed around with messy friendships like Peggy and Dawn, Mm -hmm. where it doesn't have to start from a really pure place to become a pure friendship. Say what you will about Dawn in particular, but that bond between the two of them is so pure. And if you don't believe us, watch The Suitcase. Watch The Suitcase. Or just watch like 10 episodes and just wait for them to touch hands. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it reaches its pinnacle in the suitcase, but, like, if you really don't believe us. I liked that that was the one relationship that was kept unsexual. Yeah. I don't know how to say that, but... that... No, I mean, that's, like, that's where it all comes from. And, like, not that sexual relationships are wrong. It's just that I sometimes think that friendships without sex, especially between men and women, are undervalued and underrepresented. And so the fact that, especially that it was during that period of time and that it all stems from Peggy thinking that she has to have sex with Dawn to make it in her career, I think it's beautiful that they then have this very deep, very intimate relationship and they're super platonic. Mm-hmm. The most platonic. The most platonic. <laughs> but it's it's refreshing to see from Dawn particularly. You mean that he's like capable of something real somewhere deep down inside? yeah. he's not a cold dead sex machine (laughs) I like that one (laughs) Um, I feel like tangentially this is related mostly in the sense that it doesn't come off as pure but I think it's kind of pure Selena and Gary from Beep Mm -hmm. so Gary is her bag man and his whole job is just to follow Selena around and like give her the stuff that she needs and to like whisper names in her ear and which he's very good at yeah (laughs) He's incredible at his job. (laughs) He has a particular set of skills. I didn't know that I needed a bag man until I watched (laughs) me. But so a lot of characters on the show have really established dynamics and like very established rapport. Mm -hmm. But the two of them have such an ingrained rhythm with each other. And they do couple things, like they sit in a corner and banter, and they know each other so well as human beings. And I think it's precious and sweet, even though it's a little twisted and fucked up at times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the root of it feels very pure. Yeah. And I think they show... I've only made it to, like, halfway through season five, and that was a while ago. But I think over time, like, you always know that Gary very much loves and adores Selena. And Selena seems to be batting him off like an annoying little fly. But I think over time, like, they show the way that she is soft to him. And, yeah. like, actually very much adores him equally. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a very mutual relationship. Yeah. As I've been wrapping up the season of Master of None, I've been watching the friendships particularly between Dev and Arnold and then Dev and Denise. And they sometimes get together, but they're usually separate just because of the structure of the show. But in this past season, both of those pairings have had strong, funny arcs. Arnold goes to Italy to hang out with Dev, basically, and they, you know, do a bunch of dumb funny things but he's the one who he always goes to for advice and Arnold's always super wacky and weird and he's just real fun and then there's Denise who they did a whole Thanksgiving episode with and it followed them from when they were children who were friends with each other up to present day through a series of Thanksgivings and it was so good and so great to see such a great authentic portrayal of friendship from a, you know, like elementary school age uh-huh. all the way up. 
it was really, really a strong episode. It's a strong season in general, but those two friendships help the show stay grounded because he's sort of, he gets distracted by everything else that's going on around him and all his thoughts and feelings about women. And they keep him grounded in reality. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Which is always necessary. Absolutely. I mean, what's what's the point of having friends if you're not looking for people who know you well enough to call you on, you, on your shit? Like, we're coming full circle. Right. It's the whole point is to have, like, a group of people who know you well enough to know what you're up to and, like, know when to call you on it. Exactly. I've got three more quick shout outs. Cool. I've got one more. I'm going to bang them out. Go for it. Bob Belcher and Teddy, last name unknown. <laughs> oh my god! I my last one was the Belcher siblings. <laughs> that is another show that belongs in the Michael Shore universe of friendship. Yes, it's an honorary yeah. family member. It's yeah, a wonderful. There's a show. lot of ragging on each other, but it's never cruel. I probably got ten episodes in before I realized that it was not playing the same game as Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, it took a little while because it almost looks the same. And then you're like, no. Well, it's like a little crude and like they still make fun of each other. There's still fart jokes. Yeah, it's not polite. Like you wouldn't show it to proper company. (laughs) 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 But it's not, it's still kind comedy. Yeah. It's not hurt. Get you a girl that can do both. (laughs) Get you a girl that can do both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so what what i identified about the siblings in particular is that they do all make so much time making fun of each other but each one of them also knows who they are as individuals and so can own it Mm -hmm. so like even though they all make fun of tina they're all like fiercely protective of her but she also can't be bothered by any of them right and it's because they all secretly love each other deep down inside and so she knows that they're not trying to hurt her by making fun of her feelings are gross Feelings are really gross. I mean, mostly (laughs) it reminds me a lot of some of my friendship dynamics, so. (laughs) What are you trying to say? Who's the Tina here? (laughs) It's me. It's okay. It's you. Um, (laughs) It's just like, like no one likes being outwardly made fun of, and yet there is a core group of people that I'm friends with who can very bluntly make fun of each other, but we all know the place that it's coming from. Right. And it's never mean. It only comes from things that we recognize in ourselves. It's true. So talk to me about Bob and Teddy. I just love that Teddy's like the third wheel in the Belcher family. (laughs) (laughs) And it's clear that he's lonely. And that part's sad. But he's always just hanging around. He's often unwelcome. But Bob kind of (laughs) likes that he's there. And they go on adventures together. And (laughs) he's just, he's his ride or die. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> in the in the funniest one. The other episode that's like a total sucker punch is the one where Bob is pretending to be Teddy's best friend to save him from having another heart attack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Teddy overhears Bob saying that he's not his best friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then Bob suddenly realizes in the middle of like their stunt double class that Teddy really is his best mm-hmm. friend. <laughs> It's the Pam and Dwight all over again. Oh my god, and the Jim and Dwight. Yep. And like, in some ways, the Jane and Raph. It's true. (laughs) It's true. I just love how whenever Bob gets stuck in between the walls of their house, he's always like, don't worry, Bobby, I'm coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite. 
stupid show. (laughs) The other two I added on my list, uh, Matt and Landry from Friday Night Lights, not Riggins and Six because they're still, they're important, but they're not as great in my mind. And Matt and Landry throwing the football in front of his grandma's house is the ultimate Friday Night Lights scenes for me, always. It's in the pilot, but it's such a tone setter for the whole series. And that's the one that really drives the sense of place for me the most. Uh, But their friendship stays strong throughout the whole series. It's really great. And then my last one (laughs) is Lucille 1 and 2. (laughs) That's a friendship built kind of on hate, but also on friends. (laughs) Well, that's another one that's, like, predicated on their rivalry, but they also can't live without each other. Right. Like, they need their rivalry to, like, maintain their sense of self. There's a reason why they're neighbors. It's true. (laughs) Well, there's a reason why they have the same name. Right. (laughs) There's a reason why they fight over Buster. Like, it's what they do. It's what they do. It's a little That's their other person. Oh, what a show. (laughs) What a show. My last question is, there are a lot of TV friendships that are obvious that we glossed over, and we talked about it a little bit in Friends, but why did you skip, like, the Friends from Sex and the City or How I Met Your Mother, Golden Girls, or some of the more seemingly obvious friendships? Mostly because they're seemingly obvious. I I have Marshallton and Barney (laughs) as a a threesome friendship on my list Uh because they always fight over who's the best friend. Mm Mm-hmm. They're just too, they were too easy, so I didn't mention them. Fair enough. But they're on there. I also have Nick Schmidt and Winston from New Girl that's sort of trying to take the same How I Met Your Mother mold. Yeah, I saw that on a list somewhere. I mean, I like Marshall, Ted, and Barney. I just... See, I don't. I'm not crazy about their friendships. It's not my favorite friendship on that show. My favorite friendship on that show is Marshall and Lily. See, they came up for me as an example of a relationship friendship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't like the relationships on that show. For a lot of the same reasons, I don't like the friends' relationships. And I don't know a ton about Sex and the City, but Sex and the City falls into this for me, too, where, like, I just don't think that just because, like, a group of people spend a lot of time together and have shared interests, primarily drinking, means that they're, like, close friends. And I don't think television is always good at differentiating. You mean just because it's in a text that people spend time together and they're friends doesn't mean that it's true. It means that (laughs) someone has to write in the text that they have a pure friendship like Leslie and Anne for it to really shine through. Because, as you've been educating us, consistently and importantly, (laughs) nothing happens accidentally in the content we're consuming. (laughs) No matter how much the writers and producers want it to just happen organically, they actually have to do it intentionally. Right. So do your work. You'll never be like Michael Schur, so don't try. But try a little because I like friendship. Yeah, I mean, it's like my fourth grade teacher used to always say, like, show, don't tell. (laughs) Is that what that meant? Yeah, that's what that one meant. Sure. (laughs) Shots fired, ABC. (laughs) Speaking of poorly written friendships, what are your thoughts on Nan and Martin? I think they could be a contender for a top TV friendship in my top 10 list this year. 
And you can tell that they're, like, definitely friends because, like, Martin spends a lot of time talking about how uh, he, like, has feelings about Nan and her life and primarily how he is her partner, her life partner, and her romantic partner. He's also and the dominant person in the relationship. He has to aggressively dominate her because he's a creature of love. And so that's really how you know that they're friends and that it's, like, a mutually supportive gig. Ugh. I want to give you a minute or two to get on your pedestal and say some thoughts about some recent writing about Downward Dog. <laughs> like the cliff notes, spare us a little. Cl- I will. So recently, shortly after the cancellation notice, a person who I admire with all of the fiber of my soul. We would love a Leslie and Ann friendship with more than anything on this earth. Yes. Posted an article about what a sad loss this show was. And her main argument was that it is quirky. It is silly and specifically as she described it, worldlessly silly. And that it shows a career woman. Therefore, it is a loss to the American television sitcom canon. And all I would like to say are these two things. You cannot, no matter what you do, remove the fact that Martin said on multiple occasions that he has to aggressively dominate Nan. He threatened to rip her throat out, guys. Like, I'm sorry, but the dog is an abusive romantic analog. There is nothing cute about it. And there is nothing cute about her weird, maniacal boss trying to go on a date with an emotionally abusive dog boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) There's just... You cannot create a show universe that has enough suspended disbelief to make that acceptable. The other thing I would like to say is that, on this note about showing not telling, it is not enough to have a woman in a career and call that a story about a career woman. We don't know the company that she works for. We don't know her job title. They also don't know what marketing is as an entire industry. We have spent eight episodes trying to figure out what the hell she does and how she put together this ad campaign. That is not a story about a working woman trying to make her way through the world. That is a clusterfuck of a person who uses words that sound like professionalism and industry speak in order to prove a point about millennials. And they got the technology wrong. And, and that they got upset all the technology me. wrong. And then, like, and there's no stakes. Like, she tries the campaign. The campaign doesn't work. She gets stressed. And then the campaign works. And she gets a job that she doesn't want. Cool. Like, that's not a story about a career woman. No. There's no right or wrong way to tell that story except that this was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I will step off my pedestal now. Thank you for your time. <laughs> <laughs> so this to an interesting conundrum because when we saw this article posted we were this is someone that we respect in the tv community in the criticism world and it was so shocking to us to see such a different opinion in something that we thought was very clear we wouldn't have probably done a hate watch if we if it hadn't been so obvious because we don't want to offend all of our listeners but we (laughs) we really feel like It was a straight shot. And that got us thinking, what do we do with people who disagree with us about TV? And this isn't (laughs) new, but this is something I've encountered a lot when people know that you like decent television. 
Yep. And you like to talk about television because they think that's an entry point to have a conversation with you. And that's great. It is. Of course, that's exactly how, like, friendship is formed. Right. (laughs) And then they say, oh my god, do you watch This Is Us? It's so good. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so this is going to go one of two or three ways, right? (laughs) It's either going to be me saying no, they say why, and then I say because it's a bad show, and it's poorly (laughs) written and problematic, and then they get mad at me. Because either I don't like their show or I've shed light on an issue they hadn't thought of before and ruined it for them. Or they just think you sound pretentious. Like, it sounds yes. earlier than thou. Right, exactly. Or I say, you know, it's not for me. And that's kind of not really engaging in the conversation they were looking for. <laughs> yeah, in all the times we talked about, like, stories that aren't compelling television, like, that is a story that's not compelling in life. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Or I say that's not a good show. You should watch something else. Again, I look pretentious. So there's no winning for anyone in this conversation. So I'm posing it as a question that I don't have an answer to of how do I have a construction, constructive conversation? (laughs) Why? How do I construct? (laughs) Well, I think first you need a permit. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) um, so how do I have a con, con, Well, I guess you don't. <laughs> you can learn how to speak first. That might help. <sighs> hey, Vulture <laughs> podcast host, if you're out there. No. Um. <laughs> yeah, Vulture, I heard you recently had an opening in your schedule. <laughs> Consider this our portfolio. Um, anyway, Uh, when talking to people who are really excited to tell you about a show and engage with you about a show that you know is bad, what do you do and how do you have a productive conversation out of that without sounding like a douchebag? You and I have talked about this so much in the last two summers because, as we've said on the show, Kelsey has been banned from watching Game of Thrones with her boyfriend because... They have a no talking rule when they watch Game of Thrones. So it's not like she's saying stuff out loud while they watch, but just like the knowledge to him that she's texting me like snarky stuff is enough to like impact his experience watching the show. And like, y'all know how we feel about Game of Thrones. And there are people out there who feel the same as us. However, there's a larger majority of people who believe that Game of Thrones is not only legitimate television, but like maybe not prestige television, but whatever the next notch would be. Yeah, I'm gonna call it like high class television. I'm making that up. But so yeah, like, how do we coexist in such a complicated and dynamic media environment where, you know, I was just reading an article the other day from a media critic about how social media has encouraged every person to pretend that they are a media critic. Mm -hmm. And like, everyone has a right to be like, that's the whole point of construction of meaning from a text. So as a group of dynamic audiences trying to make meaning of these texts together, how do we like maintain our own sense of superiority without crushing the spirits of others? Right. And I think it's worth mentioning that you and I are of a group that studied it in school, too. Right. So we're coming at it with a lens that is, how do I say this? We're coming at it with a knowledgeable lens. Yeah. So there was a question that I wrote down. And getting to explaining this question is going to take me a little bit. 
But the question was basically like, how do people's understandings of the media landscape, let's say, impact their critical view of the text? And so, you know, one example of this that came up for me was I was talking to a coworker about The Office, and he he was going through, like, all of these thoughts and feelings he was having about the end of the series. And at one point, he stopped and, like, thought about it for a minute, and he was like, you know, I thought of The Office as being, like, a silly show. I had no idea that it was so deep or that I could get so much out of it. And I had this moment, you know, coming from a school of thought that says that meaning is only made by the audience, where I was like, well, duh, you got something out of it. That's the whole point of the art form. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, but I think there was, I don't know if this is still the time of television that we're in, but I think there was a time where viewers were taught that like some genres or formats were valid and some weren't. And so like the half hour sitcom is like silly and light viewing and isn't supposed to mean anything or be impactful in any way. It's just supposed to kill time. Whereas like the one hour drama is supposed to have cultural relevance. And even that was new before... Like, that started with The Sopranos and The Wire. Right. Well, right. Yeah, you're right. If you go even further back, it was even more black and white, where it was like, television is nothing, film is where meaning is made. Right. And then even within film, there's, like, a broader history of, like, what film was considered to be, like, critically valid and what film wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, like, to your point that there are people who have different lenses, and so there's, like, people who have sat in classrooms and have been told... All art is valid. This is how you watch it to determine what is valid about it. And then there are people who have been, like, in the world and have been told, like, sitcoms are not valid. This is how you watch them, knowing they're not valid. How do those types of conditionings impact the way that people are critically viewing? And then we get stuck talking about it at work. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have a general, at this point, have a general thought process. Things like, if it's on HBO, it's elite. Uh-huh. Whether or not it is, if it's on HBO, yes. Yeah. So I, f- I find a lot of people who I encounter who immediately will say, like, oh, do you watch that new thing on HBO? I'm like, no, because I've heard it's <laughs> really bad. It's trash. Right. But, you know, that's sort of the brand that they've come to understand as being high-value programming. And it's not not high-value programming. Like, sometimes it is very strong, but... It's hard to break down the specifics per show mm-hmm. without telling someone that what they like is bad. Right, right. I had a specific instance that made me initially have this thought even, which maybe was self-centered, but where people at work were talking about Game of Thrones last season, and I just casually said something about how the writing was really bad, particularly that season, because they're not following the books anymore. Mm-hmm. And someone came to work the next Monday And we're like, I wish you hadn't said something. Oh, no. (laughs) Because now I'm noticing it. And it's, it's like, yes, so it's not a bad thing to open someone's eyes to something, but I wasn't there to ruin their fun. Right. And so then I felt bad. And I didn't know where to go from there. (laughs) Well, because the whole thing, right, is like, especially if you do buy into the school of thought that like, meaning is constructed by the audience, and not by like, the author is dead, right? Mm hmm that whole school of thought, and that nothing is passive. So if you truly buy into that, then that also means that nothing has inherent value. It's all about the value that the consumer gets from it. So like, trashy example, I really like boy bands. And sometimes I like them ironically, and sometimes I don't. (laughs) Come at me. (laughs) 
And I have, like, a long history with, like, pop emo and whatever. Like, my music tastes are extremely varied. And so I had done this thing with one of my coworkers where we, like, made these Spotify playlists of music that was impactful to us. And at one point, he said to me, like, you know, I didn't want to judge, but wow. And valid, fair enough. Some of the stuff that's on there is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And some of it's on there ironically, but it's also, like, there was a period of time where, like, it meant something to me. Mm-hmm. And just because it's not the highest form of art, it's not like Beethoven, like, you're not going to put Simple Plan up against Bach fine but it doesn't mean that like the art is not valid right but so now i'm at a point where people know i'm a tv snob yes <laughs> right so Thank then you. if they're engaging in a conversation near me about a show that i don't watch that i think is bad <laughs> i don't engage at all and i just do my work and whatever but yeah. then they know that i know that they know <laughs> <laughs> so there's like well see, and i have a <laughs> I have a similar problem where I have no impulse control, like similar but different. So when people get into it, I get into it. Mm -hmm. I can't not say what I think and feel, which is not a great look on me. You know, like sometimes it would do me well to shut my mouth so (laughs) that I'm not ruining someone's watching experience. Like who am I to say how they should feel about what they watch? And yet I do. Right. (laughs) So it's tough because it's also like... We're not paid professionals. And so for us to sit down in front of someone and start talking about the office and be like, well, in my opinion, as someone who has studied criticism. We sound like like, assholes. Yeah, like there's no way to have that conversation. I mean, is that what we've come down to, that no one wins ever? I'm going to jump the shark a little here. Are you ready? I'm ready. I feel like this is an extremely granular example of what is happening politically. (laughs) I told you this was a discussion for the modern times. (laughs) Like, I think the thing that we want to talk about is not unreasonable, right? You want to be able to talk about the way in which you disagree about watching television. Right. You want to be able to say, like, This Is Us is really fucking stupid. And someone else wants to be able to say, like, hey, I really like This Is Us. And you want to be able to have that dialogue and, like, you know, fight it out over the high points and low points and have that be an educational moment in how you study a text, mm-hmm. right? And yet it feels like we can't because if you're not in total agreement with someone, then you're harsh in their buzz. Yeah. And it's not even that you can't agree. It's that your level of understanding may differ so vastly that your interpretation yeah. is completely different. Right, right. And I don't know, like, maybe as like, a society, we're just not good at talking to each other about anything ever. I mean, I encourage encourage our listeners and ourselves to engage in television criticism conversation as practice for political conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a lower stakes way to get used to having uncomfortable conversations. I mean, I think like you and I did it a little bit with rom-com education Mm -hmm. where like I flat out did not believe that that genre had any merit. I only believed it was problematic. I only believed it was trashy. And I only believed that as a serious viewer that it had nothing to offer me. And I'm not saying that I'm going to go and like start binging rom-coms, but like I have an understanding of where it fits in the world now in a way that I didn't before. Mm -hmm. And I do value it as a narrative Mm -hmm. platform or whatever. I don't know. Is that just the bottom line? Like, we just need to be more willing to, like, actually be honest about why we like things? Hey, United Nations, if you're out there. (laughs) 
<laughs> we got two diplomats ready to go. <laughs> well, so I'm just actually, kidding. We can't fix these problems. No, we can't. We can't fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> Please come to us only with your television problems. <laughs> If someone wants to create, like, a United Nations position that's just, like, global media literacy, we could do that. Yeah. We could do that. As long as it's based on American art forms, because we're running out of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think if there's a way to sneak in some higher quality content to your recommendations or your conversations to people who may be watching something that isn't so great but is similar... Yeah. Maybe that's your best leg up to be like, hey, if you like that, I've been watching this show. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten really into the idea recently of, like, close reads. And so I guess, like, for me, the question is, like, why are you watching the thing? Like, what are you taking away from it? And that comes from, like, a broad assumption that people are watching things as instructional texts. Mm -hmm. Like, you wouldn't be engaging with it if you weren't trying to pull meaning from it. And so maybe that's the way we approach the conversation, like... Maybe The Office is super fucking problematic, and a lot of the relationships are really unhealthy, and a lot of the stuff is really obnoxious, but, like, what are the friendship themes that you like, and how can we direct you to Parks and Rec instead? Mm-hmm. And that's Just a like real a easy one to slide in there. Yeah. <laughs> Someone had to do it with me like that. I refused to watch Parks and Rec for a long time. I was perfectly happy to watch The Office. Mm-hmm. And then I had a friend in college who... It was not Kelsey, for the record, uh, <laughs> who spent years working on me until I finally watched Parks and Rec. And that was a life-changing moment. Yeah. We did it, too. We refused to watch Jane the Virgin for a while because we had a misconception of what that show was about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see what I did there? Um, yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Sorry, that was an accidental pun. <laughs> Uh, and then we happened to watch it for Pilot Palooza, and that has also been life-changing. Yeah. I would also encourage everyone to have a Pilot Palooza for themselves. You should have a Pilot That Palooza. was a very helpful exercise in testing things that you wouldn't typically watch and just seeing what you think. Right. However, testing things that were critically acclaimed. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. <laughs> so we're in the bubble already, but... Yeah, I mean, our bias, like, is there forever. Like, because I have a series of gatekeepers, I will not watch anything until it's critically acclaimed. (laughs) Which is a bias, and I missed out on some good television for a while because of it. You know, Parks and Rec wasn't critically acclaimed for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, like, my question is, what do you do then if you have people who really like King of Queens? (laughs) Oh, those people are beyond home. If they're watching (laughs) The Big Bang Theory... (laughs) I mean, you say that, and yet Everybody Loves Raymond made it into TV the book, hashtag our heroes have failed us. I know. So in moments like that where, like, I hate Everybody Loves Raymond with a fiery passion, you can find us at Twitter at HateWatchWithUs and try to convince me that there is some merit to Everybody Loves Raymond, but I will never get there. (laughs) And yet it made it into a list of top 100 American TV shows of all time made by two critics who I highly respect. And they made some egregious claims about what the show accomplished during its run. And I feel personally offended and violated by it. (laughs) So what do I do now? Where do I go from here? And like, how do you talk to someone who loves everybody loves Raymond when they're wrong? I don't know. I mean, the best solution I've come up with is to find a show that you can gravitate towards with them as like the entry point. Mm. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've gotten everyone at work to watch The Great British Bake Off. 
It's been a, a long, hard-fought battle, but we're doing it. And there's not a lot of meat to discuss there in terms of cinematography. No. <laughs> or anything like that. But it's something that we can at least all agree on and then go from there. Yeah. So there is an understanding. I don't think that solves the fact that, you know, there's people who like reality shows that are really terrible and people who like vinyl on <laughs> on Showtime. <laughs> And, you know, you can't win them all. You can't win them all. And, like, I was thinking there was an article that was just published by, I think we tweeted it. Oh, by BBC. Yeah. About, it was called, like, The Joy of Hate Watching. And one of the arguments that they make is that in a time of social media, everybody feels the need to be, like, snarky and ironic, and people rarely have pure emotions. And it's tough because, like, I think that is part of what makes it so difficult to actually talk to people on a human level at this point. Mm -hmm. And again, like, maybe that's part of what contributes to, like, the political atmosphere is, like, we can't just be real with each other. And, you know, that's the premise of this entire show. So, like, I, I get that. But I don't know. I mean, I guess my question is, what would it be like if instead of, you know, snarkily watching Game of Thrones, you tried to watch it through the lens of someone who thought it was prestige television. I know from spending a season <laughs> trying to do that, that I like it less when I do it that way. Right. But then what does someone do who believes it's prestige television when they try to watch it through the lens of someone who thinks that it's fodder for a hate watch? Right. Do they also like it less? Well, your coworker stands as an example. I mean, yeah. obviously it does, you know, shatter the illusion for someone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I started hate watching it because I was bored with it. Yeah, me too. And That's I was exactly like, well, what happened. there's nothing else going on. So I might as well count the dick jokes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I gave it, I gave it like three seasons to convince me that it was yeah. legitimate television. Yeah. I and tried. Season four, I was like, what? And I, I also try to go with the, when people say, particularly, like, my boyfriend will say, why are you even watching this if you just hate it so much? And besides my podcast obligations, <laughs> I'd like to be aware of what's happened for that water cooler conversation of whatever it is in 2017 that isn't a water cooler. Like, <laughs> I like to know what's going on and be able to be in a meeting and be like, yeah, I saw those dragons and shit, too. <laughs> well, right. It's about being culturally literate. Right. We've talked about this on the show a lot. My biggest struggle is that I'm not culturally literate, and I spend a lot of time trying to play catch-up. That's what rom-com was for. That was exactly what it was It was, was like for. speed like dating. <laughs> exactly. Because there was a massive swath of film history where I just had nothing. And people try to talk to me about these things, and I'm literally always the asshole where someone, people know that I'm also a TV snob. And are like, oh, did you see this movie? Did you see the show? And people get tired of hearing me say no. Right. A lot of conversations have died very quickly because I have to be like, I'm sorry that I always say no. <laughs> <laughs> like, you want to be part of the culture. It's almost like an attitude of agreed to disagree, but that feels really unsatisfying. Like, that feels like a cop-out. Yeah. Well, I think it's an agreed to coexist, right? Right. Because if we're hate-watching something, we're still giving it views. We're right. still giving it our time. Right. So we're agreeing to put up with the people who also like it and give it their time. If it's something well, that's that bad, like, we never would pick up a rewatch of Everybody Loves Raymond. Hell no. So I don't know if there's a line in the sand that's like, I'm not going to watch a, you know, a show that's so, so bad. Right. I don't, I don't know. 
I suppose it's an issue, though, of, like, personal metrics. Like, mm-hmm. what makes a show good or bad to me is so vastly different than what makes a show good or bad to anyone else, really. I mean, so my blind spot, to be fair, is that I only watch things that critics have decided are good. And so I walk into anything that I choose to pick up, and I'm like, okay, someone has said this is good, so now it's my job to determine if that's true or not. But it's not like I'm starting fresh with something and saying, like, is this good by my own judgment? Yeah. I judge everything by someone else's judgment because I have decided that I'm not willing to do the work myself of figuring it out from the beginning. Yeah, it's pretty rare that I'll pick up a show for its pilot and watch it through. I think the last one I did that for is You're the Worst, Uh which was a couple of years ago. So I, I know what you're saying in that regard. I think it depends on the life of the show too, right? Like if it's a Netflix series, <laughs> you don't have any time yeah. to see it yourself because people's think pieces come out the day it drops. <laughs> yeah. So Because some people get screeners. Right. Hashtag rude. It's the nature of the media we consume. Yeah. Yep. No, that's fair. I also wonder, like, in a time when the only producers of television content were networks... The bar was set very differently than it is now that we have Netflix and Hulu and HBO and CBS All Access and whoever, whoever else is in the ballgame these days. And so does having like such a divided, specialized media landscape change people's like base knowledge and attitudes? Well, yeah. And I think there's a lot of people, especially older generations who still say, oh, it's on Channel 4. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, so it's on CBS. Yeah. This is a broadcast network that's not on Channel 4 everywhere in the world, believe it or not. Believe it or not. And that that's just what they know, and it's not to any fault of their own, but well, and it's even I at s- that level that we're seeing I that. still know the CW is being a creator of laughable content that I would never in a million years watch, and yet Jane the Virgin is, like, a pillar upon which I have built my life. Well, right. And the CW is the WB. Right. Which was a whole different story, but not. But not, because it still gave us gems, like, uh, wasn't Veronica Mars on the WB? Mm-hmm, and One Tree Hill, and Gilmore Girls, and Everwood. Ugh. Yeah, what a these, time were, these are all pivotal shows, <laughs> and yet it's considered to be a lesser platform. Mm-hmm. One thing I've tried to do uh, <laughs> to minimal success was mm-hmm. reference other people's thoughts instead of my own. Yeah. Just yeah. because I don't want to be the asshole sometimes, so I'll be like oh, you're watching Master of None. I heard that this episode someone said was the best episode of television they'd seen in 2017. Although I sometimes feel like the amount to which I name drop television critics like also makes me look pretentious. Well, yeah, that's why I just said I heard it on a podcast and left it vague. Yeah, But that was fair. enough that that person then came to me a couple weeks later and was like, oh, I just watched that episode that you, t- you were talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of thoughtful things to say, but it was an entry point, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they still appreciated it because, like, they had your advice and your wisdom. I wonder how much of that comes from the fact that television is still sort of building its validity. Um, Like, we're still in that part of its historical development. And so... Do you think we are, though? Well, I mean, it's more established than it was even 10 years ago, but certainly it's, like, 50 to 70 years behind film in terms of its legitimacy. I feel like film has taken such a downwards turn, though. Oh, for sure. If you think of it as, like, two graphs, where one is on a downward trend, one's on an upward trend, I would say that they're at the cross section. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think TV is is having its moment extremely quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, Like, that's the whole peak TV thing. That being said, I still think it's, like, up and coming to study television or think critically about television. Like, I think that's what my coworker was getting at by being like, you know, I thought The Office was light watching, but I didn't realize I could get so much out of it. Mm -hmm. So, like, are we still in this evolution point where I'm thinking about it for you and I in particular, where, like, that insecurity comes from... From feeling like it's not a medium that we are supposed to be deeply critical of and deeply invested in. Well, yeah, and I think it depends on who we're talking to also, right? Because that's not either of our professions. Right. So people don't assume that we know. And again, we go back to sounding like assholes being like, well, I have a degree. (laughs) I mean, that's why I always make the joke on this podcast, like... You know, as a scholar, scholarly articles. Right. And we're, like, we're like scholars for funsies. We're not serious. So don't yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't know. What's interesting about this conversation is you guys out there didn't hear the development of this conversation over the last couple of weeks. You're just sort of hearing us soul searching in real time right now. <laughs> but, but this started from two very different conversation topics that were on much taller horses, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> We started, so we started from like the our heroes have failed us viewpoint, where like a bunch of critics we respect made some choices, such as calling Everybody Loves Raymond one of the top 100 television shows ever made in the US, (laughs) (laughs) which I will never let go of. Nope. And then also like, how do we talk to people about the bad TV that they watch, which are like very different viewpoints than us being able to sit here and say like, everyone's preferences are valid. Which seems like a vanilla bad result of this conversation. I disagree. I I could see why you say that because it sounds like an oversimplification. And like, I suppose... Well, and I want to be right. Well, yeah, I really want to be right. And I'm not even saying that like, people can't be right. Like, I think we all, in all parts of our lives, if I can get philosophical for a second, like have a responsibility to like, be providing education and enrichment to each other. That's the whole point of engaging with other humans, right? Sure. And like, that's kind of the whole point of culture is like the things that we share commonly. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of wanting to be right, it's valid to want to sort of like stand your ground and be able to say with confidence, like, this thing is definitively better than this thing that you like because of the art form or because of the technique or the technology or whatever. Right. Well, isn't it the same as as our beer conversation from a couple weeks ago where it's like, not with the gender norms around it, but with the assertion that, you know, the beer that you're suggesting is actually the right beer for this person. And they're saying, well, you don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off of your point. No, no, no. I think you made my point. Like, I think we all have a responsibility to, like, make these suggestions to each other and also be able to hear that some person may have a basis (laughs) that makes that knowledge grounded. You know, like, some people are grounded in things. But I think, like, everyone also has a responsibility to not be so right all the time. Yeah. I guess where I'm coming to is if you're talking to someone who thinks Game of Thrones is the pinnacle of television, and I'm only beating up on Game of Thrones because it's easy. (laughs) So, so easy. So easy. Um, But they think Game of Thrones is the pinnacle of all of television and all of writing. Then I see that responsibility of education and enrichment is coming down on like, How do you take a critical view without saying that their love of the show is wrong? Yeah. Right? So you turn that conversation into a critical one. 
So like, let's talk about themes. Let's talk about production techniques. Like, let's talk about show performance. And there are things about that show that you can say are decent. Oh, for sure. I mean, we gave him some props when we did our preview episode. Like, there are things that they are doing that are impressive. Yeah. And no show or text or whatever is 100% wrong all the time. You know, to my simple plan pop emo punk example, like, those songs are stupid and trite, but at the time, they taught me something about the world. <laughs> like, say what you will about it, that's valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess, like, how do we all learn to talk to each other in a way that provokes thought as opposed to just, like, proving that someone is good because they watch a good show? Right. Like, I think part of the problem is that, like, media is so much of the creation of identity via consumption. Yeah. And so it's like, you out there know who I am because you listen to this podcast and you know that I watch Parks and Rec, Jane the Virgin, The Office, and that there's, like, 10 shows I don't like. You guys all know that about me, so you know who I am now. <laughs> uh, and that's problematic. It's problematic in the same way that larger cultural conversations about, like, identity and differences are problematic. Mm-hmm. The gears are turning. I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I know. And I didn't realize that I did. I know. I <laughs> Not to, like, call back to this quote, but, like, I didn't actually know that we would get this much out of this topic. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. I don't know that we gave everyone a satisfying definitive answer, but we gave you a lot to chew on. And genuinely, we hope that this is something you'll engage with. Like, we would love to hear from you on Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you in our email. Like, very, very genuinely, because I think we wouldn't be making this podcast if watching stuff was meaningless. And hate watching <laughs> stuff was meaningless. Yeah, and hate watching. I mean,. You all know by now that we're not always hate watching here. And even when we're genuinely watching, I think there is like a little bit of that snark. It's like we have our foot in both doors at any given time. <laughs> we're skeptics. <laughs> we're total skeptics. But I don't know. I sort of think that's just the way of it. It's just that like hate watching gives it a name. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like everybody must be doing that, right? If you're able to like identify flaws in anything. I think maybe. I don't know. Unless it's, it's flawless and it's Parks and Rec. <laughs> I kid. Yeah. I kid. I kid. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, immediately my mind went to the things in that show that are problematic as much as we talk about like what a beautiful piece of friendship and love it is. There are definitely some things in there that make me squirm once in a while. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Not all the time. Just like once in a while. I've never squirmed in my life at Parks and Rec, but... I'm a lesser human than you are. <laughs> Shall we have a critical conversation about it, Kelsey? <laughs> Not tonight. No, but really, folks, like, reach out to us on Twitter at HateWatchWithUs. Send us emails at HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. Be interested in hearing your experiences, hearing what you're into, and hearing how you deal with this. Because I feel like people talk about what they watch enough these days that this is, like, probably a somewhat common experience. Yeah. Also, like, just be nice to each other, okay? I always think about, I listened to Amy Poehler's, this is a side note, I listened to Amy Poehler's book yes. recently, and I constantly think about the one little piece of advice that she brings up a million times, which is good for you, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important <laughs> to think about that before you really engage in conversations like this, to be like, you know what? Good for you, not for me. Yeah, exactly. I feel like to me, a lot of the point of this conversation is just like, be nice to each other and like legitimize each other once in a while. And call each other out on their shit. 
if yes, your friends in enough a, in a way that's like <laughs> if your friendship is pure enough of love. <laughs> <laughs> just love each other guys okay just like love each other Kirstie, this isn't that kind of a podcast i want it to be now no hey watch with us <laughs> <laughs> no we're all friends now so now i just love you all oh boy <laughs> oh boy all right well listen again next week we'll be talking about some things actually i think we're going to be talking about exciting things i don't want to promise anything because it can change but i'm seeing the big sick tomorrow so keep that in mind a little rom-com education redo mm-hmm. i'm so excited <laughs> all right friends well thank you for sticking in it we hope that this was a enjoyable conversation we'll see you all soon Bye! Goodbye. Subtweet, subtweet. Friend zones are almost like romantic relationships, but they're not.